Love, baby, love! Hi, this is record producer Nick Lornay. Please join me on In Excess Access All Areas with Hayden and B. Access All Areas, episode 122, the podcast that dives deep into all things great about NXS, gets them into the Rock Hall of Fame, has fun, does it with my compadre B and a bunch of loyal listeners and patron holders. B, how are you? You look very relaxed today. I am very relaxed. Thank you. Thank you. And you do too. Yeah. Well, look, we were excited about all the feedback we had last week about Nick Lornay. Uh, As you said last week, it was one of your favourite guests we've had on, Mm -hmm. uh, and he certainly delivered and I sort of listened back to the episode, B, and uh, we're just like a fan of him and mm. hearing his story, and it was uh, just as moving as it was doing it the first time around. Yeah, great stories. Um, this has just taken us to another level of, like, finding out a little bit more about the rock and roll Michael Patchens as well. Yeah, fantastic. Well, uh, one of the big things, I guess, for Nick, you know, was that he was able to open up, you know, quite a lot in that first episode. But mm. uh, today I think we go to another level. Uh, some of the Some of the acts and stories. Stories and 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 uh, relationships and uh, time spent with the band and uh, and other artists through his career. He really does uh, dive deeper today, and we think if our listeners like last week, they're in for a real treat today. That's right. Hold in there if you want to hear about this week because it'll take a good seventeen minutes to actually get yes. there. But yes. listen to the beginning because this is absolute gold. All right, over to you, Nick Lornay. Beautiful over the years. Over the years, so many people out there, especially his brethren and his musical, you know, peers and everybody there has never said a bad word about him. He was just so such a lovely person. Such he he would walk into the room. I tell you what, he it doesn't matter who you were with or what was going on. He'd walk in the room, and it would just you'd feel it. You know, you'd just feel. A presence, and it was optimistic. It was up. It was fun, and he just had this 
great way of moving and swagger. I mean, it's, you know, it is charisma. It's charisma at its best. I mean, you know, Mick Jagger, obviously one of the most charismatic people ever. And and there's a similarity there without a doubt. No wonder people compared the two. Yeah. I mean, I don't think Michael was ever copying no. Mick because it was just like he just had that similar thing. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I just really, I, I had a lot of great time. When we were doing the the swing, me and him would hang out probably the most. And I remember once we tried to go to the gym together. We There was a gym. There was a gym. Well, there was a gym. There was a gym underneath the studio on the third floor of this building. In Sydney then? Yeah. And I'd, yeah. And I, yeah. And I, you know, I, yes. I was, healthy only because I was young and and he was equally healthy only because he was young. But we both felt we should do some exercise. And we went in there and of course it was all full of these blokey guys, you know, all lifting up and there was like, we didn't know what we were doing. It was just like, I had no idea where to, what weights, how do you do? It was just like, honestly, we were like, that was it. Never, I've never been to the gym ever again. I think. I think later on, uh, uh, Michael worked out how to behave in a gym. But we did that, and there was another great time. I remember uh, when they were huge. When they got, you know, when Kick had kicked in. Um, I remember going to the launch of the follow-up album, the X album, and it was at Worcester Hall. Is that what it's called in in New York? Uh, big nightclub and you know it was great and and they had an and sort of after party and there was labels there and there was all that and and Michael was like you know he was dating um, what's her name Chris Helena Helena, Helena Christensen yeah so he was with yeah. her and I was still this very geeky guy then I was very geeky looking probably quite rock and roll but not not in in all the good ways you know but uh <laughs> anyway he he you know i hadn't hung out with him and he really wanted to hang out with me but he also had this agenda he had a plan and he didn't tell me what it was he, he was like oh, it's really boring here you know let, let's get out of here so he grabbed me by the hand he, I, me and Helena he grabbed us by the hand we went up these stairs to the to the back of this club and we went down the fire escape really fast and down the bottom there was this stretch limo and he and Helena got in and went to one end and he pushed me into the back seat and I kid you not, I was sitting between Naomi Campbell and Kate Moss. <laughs> and it was just, <laughs> and off we went. And I was like, oh my God. And I remember oh looking at, God. and this was, no, it was very rock, rock and roll. roll. And this was when, <laughs> before they became the huge supermodels, they were quite young. I remember, that, yeah. I remember looking at them both and they looked like aliens to me because, you know, I mean, they look stunningly beautiful, but their eyes are very far apart and they have, you know, they, it, it's something about those, those. <laughs> well, I, took, <laughs> I took nothing. nothing. <laughs> I took nothing. But no, but they had those sort of visage features and these yeah, jaw lines was like, and I'd, cheeks. I'd never, I'd never mm. seen people who looked like this. It was quite bizarre to me. And, and then we went back to the hotel and I mean, all kinds of other people arrived. It was like, it's quite a ride knowing Michael, you know, yes. from the beginning, from the <laughs> beginning, he was like this, 
a geeky looking guy who turned up at Platinum Studios while I was doing the models and he had lots and lots of pimples, mm. very pimply face, mm. greasy kind of hair, kind of cool, and but very, very gangly. You know, mm. sort of like I'm. I've always mm. been gangly, and Sean mm. was gangly. So it was, you know, thin, gangly people. And then, you know, doing that record, <laughs> and it become, you know, the swing, and it becoming big, and then they become bigger and bigger and bigger. And then I ended up doing a lot of the twelve inch remixes for for Kick and for yes. uh, other other rec- You know, a lot of the In Excess records. We did a bit um, of stuff for the uh, Dogs in Space movie, didn't you? Any mod of well, right. Well, that yeah. that was uh, Michael brought me into that, and that's probably where I first met um, Richard because Richard obviously yes. wrote and directed that. Yes. So mm-hmm. so that was I went down to Melbourne, and that that was quite funny when I think about it because um, there was this band called No, you know, which is um, the soundtrack. To dogs in space. Yes. Yes. Okay. So th- th- there's a lot of music in there that that was I can't uh, was his name. Oh God, Mer- Ollie I'm Olsen. Sure his last name's Ollie oh, Olsen. Oh, oh yes, that's right, Ollie Olsen. Mm. And there was another guy called it was Ollie Olsen was the person I was thinking. Thank you very mm. much. So Ollie Olsen had done a lot of the music for the for the film, but there was this one song, you know, called called Rooms for the Memory that. Michael was going to sing on and I don't know what had happened before but anyway I ended up flying down to Melbourne to record his vocal and I had a few more ideas and I think Andrew Duffield from The Models played some keyboard part Mm. on there as well that I was hearing it was kind of a a weird situation because I can imagine for Ollie Olsen it was like what what the fuck's going on you know this because at that point I was a big known as a big record producer who'd done a lot of big commercial hits and of course Ollie Ollie was a very underground cool guy but then you know but of course then we met and it it all worked out and uh, you know it sort of became became friends and all that so but I I do remember it being a bit odd and feeling a bit awkward because I'd been brought in to do Michael's vocals you know which is quite a big rock star type thing to do I've got my own producer and I remember that was very awkward and I I remember sort of wanting to say to to Ollie you know look I'm 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 just a normal guy you know I I did the birthday party I did you know I did killing uh, joke and I there's there's something sort of um, sort of almost uh, counter intuitive in that era where you know you were all on the push for success and probably earning a good income or whatever there but once that's attained it's like oh, somehow Just your credibility the yeah the coolness and credibility i think well there's the uh yeah there's yeah. the tall poppy syndrome oh, which yeah. is the so australian we, we, thing oh, you know yeah, which yeah. of course in, in excess suffered the tall poppy syndrome oh for sure i, I don't for know sure. if i ever got that tall a poppy no too gangly <laughs> yeah it's too gangly a telephone a chair
One of the weird things about Michael during that particular, you know, um, period of, of making Dogs in Space is that they'd gone on to obviously, as you know, work with Chris Thomas and they'd had a top five hit with mm. What You Need. Yet Michael's yeah. in this dingy punk house in Melbourne making this movie, yet they're top five in America for the first time. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, and, crazy. and there he is sort of doing his sort of uh, underground movie. So it was quite an interesting juxtaposition. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> it's good I mean, movie. Yeah, let, let's face it. Michael's cool, you know, like he's mm. really, he's such a cool person. And just um, open to new things. Yeah. Like and, and wanting to mm. do new things, you know, yeah. like always wanting to do new things. And I think, I think the reason we sort of kept in touch and connected was because he was a fan of, of sort of darker, yeah. sort of more underground music, you know, and he was, because, uh, you know, my, my, career, my career went up and down as well. I had sort of a, quite a lot of big, sort of what seemed like big pop hits, even though they weren't obvious pop records. Mm. And then, you know, during the 90s, I kind of disappeared a bit and then I came back and mm. started working with bands like, um, you know, you and I, and well, then, then the silver chair thing happened. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Which yeah. was a whole other thing, you know. album that he was going to do by, like he was going to put out by himself because he would have been working on that when you were talking probably yeah I mean he he worked with um, and Andy Gill Andy from Gill, the yeah. Gang of Four who's the guitar, guitar player from the Gang of Four so I know he did some with that he also there was a guy here called uh, Danny Saber which yeah. of course funnily enough when, when I moved to LA I started going to lots and lots of clubs and going out and I met Danny Saber and it, it, I thought oh that's him you know he's kind of like quite an eccentric cl club kid here for a mm. while I, I, I'm not in touch with him unfortunately but he's he was in within the group of new friends that I made in LA when I moved here yeah. he was sort of in that group there's, there's this guy called um, John X who's an engineer He's a very close friend of mine to this day. I haven't seen him actually in years, but because he moved to a different part of LA. LA is very big. So if you move to a different area, you, you end up not seeing them. But um, but I think John John X engineered some of the Michael Hutchins uh, solo oh, records we? as well. Yeah. And there's songs out there. There's songs that haven't been finished. That, oh, no. That, uh, Danny got, wants yeah. to get them out there still, yeah. doesn't he? I'm scared to have Danny yeah. on because he swears quite a lot. I think it's every sentence he has a few words to say. <laughs> right. Are oh, you going to have to... I know <laughs> I've to been beep, swearing beep, a bit. <laughs> have you noticed it's got... You can't see me now because... You're getting the, darker. Oh, You're darker. Well, it's, it's uh, 8, 8 It's vampire time, isn't it? Yeah, shall, I, shall, I turn some, shall I turn some lights on? It'd hang be on nice to see you. Yeah, hang on. Give me... Uh, one gradually second. disappearing. <laughs> yeah, hang on. I'll play a song while you uh, do that. <laughs> Hello, hello, I'm back. There he is. Hey, just yeah. just 
Just a quick one. You mentioned Andy Gill, the late Andy Gill, uh, sadly passed. Um, Mike, there's a really lovely anecdote, which I think it might have come up and mystify uh, the documentary, but or it's definitely Andy's interviewed for it. But uh, Michael apparently sort of in 94, 95, when he rung him uh, and said, oh, look, um, would you like to come down and sort of, you know, work on a song and I'd love to sort of have you and, and Andy said, yeah, great, great, great. And then about five minutes later, Michael ran back and said, oh, what I really meant to say, would you like to produce the album? Uh, he was shy. Nice. He was shy, you know. And Yeah, no, he definitely Michael he was just, again, this sort of, had this shy side, didn't he, plus this extroverted side, you know. Just a lovely person. He just really was just, yeah, I mean, I, I have such fond memories of it. You know, hanging out with him at, in hotel lobbies because they were always touring and I'd, often be working in that city wherever it was but I just, I just remember him going saying you know oh the future's all going to be sound bites and it's going to be sound bites and sound bites I thought what on earth are you talking about what is a sound bite because this is before the internet mm. and it was before mm. uh, it was digital had had you know started I was still working analog but what mm. is sound bites what is he talking about mm. and it's funny that so much later you know it's true yeah. Every, all our interviews, all our little snippets, all this TikTok stuff, all this, mm. it is, it's, yeah. it's visual and sound, sound bites. It's little bits of information. And addictive. Very addictive. And he <laughs> oh, said. Yeah. He was talking about attention span, really, wasn't he? Mm. Yes, exactly. That's what I was going to say. Like the, the whole, he said, oh, as we go on, he said the attention span of younger people is going to be shorter and shorter and shorter. Where and did we, you read you know, this? Where was he getting this I think from? He, I think he just did read a lot. I think yeah. he read a lot. He was very into the future and he had all these theories and they mm. weren't sort of like you know conspiracy theories they were just sort of observations about mm. uh, life and people and the world and all that and it's funny but that one in particular the sound bites thing i just remembered him explaining to me what a sound bite was and that it was a a recording mm. That that was a catchphrase. No, it's a term. Mm. And it didn't make sense until much later. I thought, my God, I yeah. invented it. Hayden, you want to ask a question, or shall I ask a question? You ask. Question time. I've got lots, but one just in my head. Were Were you at Wembley? Did you get to see the concert? No, I didn't go to that concert. Um, I think I might have been in London at mm. the time. I was probably in the studio. But, of course, I feel like I was there because of the footage. Mm. I mean, that. thank God that film was made oh. because it's quite extraordinary to watch because you forget, you know, how big they were. You know, they were as big as Queen, mm. you know. They, they. I remember they toured with Queen and they learned a lot from touring with Queen. And it's funny because you see all the Live Aid footage with you know, all, well, all, all those bands playing live Freddy, and, and, and that huge, huge stadium. And then you then you watch the, the in excess, and it's the same stadium packed of people just for them. I mean, yeah. it's extraordinary. Oh no, you and know, yes, it's extraordinary. The audience is just so with them and in tune yeah. with the music yeah. and singing back. It's just yeah. incredible. It's so good that it's actually now on Blu-ray, and it's just. Yeah. Fantastic. You and, you know, it's, it's also interesting to me, like having 
you know, done a lot of records with, with Nick Cave and, you know, obviously, you know, endless, endless uh, days and hours chatting with him about all kinds of things. And, you know, Michael is so fondly remembered by Nick and he, you know, he said, oh, he's one of the most rock and roll people. You know, when you when you think of what rock and roll means in that sort of partying, being a rock star going out there, I mean, it's it's sort of been sort of changed a little bit because of, well, a lot of hip hop, it's a hip hop terminology, isn't it? Like, like party, like a rock star. But what they're referring to really is a singer going up on stage and singing to all those people and being super popular and 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 all the other stuff that goes with it the the, the good looks the swagger the the conversation a lot of i mean boxes, it, didn't it's, yeah and i mean mm-hmm. you know he he really is, he, he really was the real thing i mean much more like even bono i remember has said a couple of times like you know well he's the michael's the real rock star michael's Michael, the real Well, I, I think we, uh, our patrons, listeners would love to dive a little bit deeper on the swing, which is the uh, tour de force, and um, you know, it's one little drop in a big ocean that you've created. Um, if we threw a sort of a few songs at you, maybe you'll have some some memories and some anecdotes to share. Uh, a song like "Burn for You," I think that one took a little bit of time to record, didn't it? Well, okay, so "Burn for You" was this fantastic demo uh, that Andrew had. So, so just to go back a bit further they were touring so much during that time leading up to making the swing that they didn't have time to stop and write songs so they arrived in England we went up to the Manor Studios and I remember there was this meeting it was the first time we really were all together in the same room you know with the whole band and it's like it's almost like well what have you got what have you got? So everybody had different songs, you know? And so, you know, like Tim, Tim had Melting in the Sun and, you know, and, and so on. Of course, a lot of the songs were, were Andrew, you know, he's always one of the more, more prolific writers. But Burn For You, honestly, was this fantastic instrumental that Andrew had made. It was with a drum machine and it was he played everything. And it and it had that, you know, it, it was it was pretty much what you hear. So we went in and just recreated it with the band, and it had a verse and it had a chorus, but it had no lyrics at mm-hmm. all, right? Unlike some other songs which had lyrics, this one didn't. And I can tell you that we so we did all the recording in at the Manor let's say a month at the manor. They went to Sydney, did loads of overdubs, and it got to the absolute 11th hour on the last day before I was due to fly back to England to start mixing it. And uh, I remember me and Michael stayed up all night. I mean, we'd worked, the the chorus had been worked out. So we had all these great backing vocal singers, including Jenny Morris singing, singing the chorus, but the verses were not done and the lyrics were not finished. And it was the last song to be finished. And we knew it was 
a great song, a popular song, and potentially a single. I remember Nadia uh, ended up going back to the hotel room that we were staying at, packing everything up, arriving at the studio with the suitcases, and I was still doing these vocals with Michael, the <laughs> last-minute lyrics. And then we had to take all the tapes. I'm talking about, like, 20 oh big two-inch reel of yeah. tape, very heavy, because that was... It was before digital, you know. Well, yeah. it was actually probably the beginning of digital, but this was still an analog record. Mm -hmm. And so, mm. uh, and then I remember getting in the taxi with all these tapes, waving goodbye to Michael and Michelle at the time, because he was with Michelle at the time, you know, and it was probably like, God knows, 7 a.m. on the way to the airport to get on the plane, and off we went. And, and that vocal that we finished that night, like the last little lyrics is, is the vocal that's there. It's wow. it's pretty extraordinary. Did you yeah. know that, Hayden? No. I, Did I you didn't, know that I, story? I, no, I didn't know, that's but a brilliant I, story. I think the... Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't think I'd slept for three days, you know, trying <laughs> to finish all the stuff. We had this massive list of overdubs that needed to be done. And of course, a lot of it was lyrics. That mm. was the problem. Mm. Well, you're right. I guess they were touring heavily. They'd come back from America and Shabu Shabara kicked on over there. So the turnaround yeah. time from sort of Shabu through to the American tour to actually the production side all makes sense in, this, in that there was limited time, mm. I guess, you know? I mean, recording the album, uh, the backing tracks, so to speak, like the main tracks, which is when you think about it, because, you know, this, you know, two guitar players and a keyboard player, uh, you know, it's pretty full sound. You, mm. You've kind of got like yes. the backing tracks are not, are not are not just drums and bass. It's it's the two guitars, keyboards, it's everything, and and a guide vocal, and the the, the tape the tapes, yeah, the tapes that we left with from the Manor were pretty good. I mean, it's more. It's more than half of what you hear when you listen to the swing. And, you know, some fantastic tracks there. And, that, you know, honestly, John, you know, when you've got a, a band with a great drummer who can, you know, really, really stick to time, regardless of whether Tight. it's doing to a click. I don't, I don't remember it being done to a click, by the way. No. I think there were some songs that were done to a click, but most of it wasn't. He's just such a great drummer. I mean, he can really groove. And he, you know, and he played parts yeah. that were groovy, you know. Yeah, they're just a great band. And, and you know, Gary is just a phenomenal bass player. They're all great. They were such a good band. I mean, you, you know, no wonder they took over the world because yeah. they were such a good band. And they, they had this good understanding of funk music. Like, they were huge yeah. fans of Chic. Mm -hmm. So they uh, they had that, that sort of funk element, but they also had the rock element. In fact, mm -hmm. I remember... I remember thing that happened when uh, Need You Tonight came out uh, it, it, it came out in America you know came out in England and the review for it in the NME was uh, this this band try desperately to to combine funk and rock and fail dismally <gasps> they should they should go back home and and oh yeah, hunt, they were awful. And hunt, yeah, yes. and hunt dingoes. You know, it was this. They should go back home and hunt dingoes. It, it's just so ridiculous. And then, Nigel Tonight comes out in America, and you know, went to the top of the charts. It was re-released in England 
Mm. Right, same same mm. track. Same song. You know, there was a there was a different yeah. mix, but both mixes were released, and I and, it, and then it went top ten in England, and mm. then the review in the NME mm. said, "This is one of the few bands in the world that are successful." In merging funk and rock. Is it a rock. different writer, maybe? But clearly a different writer. <laughs> but I do remember that Chris Murphy had the two uh, reviews of the same song mm -hmm. from the same magazine. He had them blown up <sighs> in a huge uh, sort of framed thing above his desk. And it is, it's so ironic and so mm -hmm. funny. Same song, yeah. same magazine. Yeah, same song. <laughs> but yeah, they, they, you know, they were such a good rhythm band because they you know they really locked in you know they i mean andrew you know uh was a great rhythm guitar player as well you know a lot a lot of a lot of i think that ding 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 that kind of rhythmic stuff that's on on need you tonight the that that's andrew i believe um you know tim always did the sort of more rock stuff and and Kirk was always doing all these jabs and sort of melodic parts, and between the three of them, it's it's they're uh, one of the most incredible, incredible guitar bands they? ever, you know, mm. because it's it's they they all have their little space, and that's what's so great about it in in excess in that they have sometimes three guitars going on, but they're all taking up a different space and they all work together, mm. or, or sometimes obviously you've got that great riff of the jank jank jank. Mm. You know, it's two different things going on there, and uh, it's it's very clever. It's very clever without it being sort of prog rock ish. You know, it doesn't have that sort of uh, look at look at us. We're so clever. It doesn't have that at all. It's very, yeah. you know, it's just in the same way that ACDC is absolutely extraordinarily simple, but so clever you know <laughs> it's uh it, it, they're they're great in that way i'm melting in the sun this is what they call the lights I remember Melting the Sun was a great was great fun to do. That was a great song to to work on. We had a lot of fun. There's a lot of weird sounds on that. Uh, I think that was one of my favorites to work on was Melting the Sun, which of course a Tim wrote that one well that was a so John co-write wasn't it yeah yes I, I think you know a lot of the songs were sort of the usual Andrew demos Michael lyrics and then there was there was quite a few that were the whole band uh, yeah Love Is What I Say that's a full band composition um, and it was a seventh video single off the album in Australia it wasn't a sort of single single but right. um, that song stacks up really well now it's a bit of a fan favorite along with johnson's airplane tell us about those two tracks if you can remember with love is what i say that actually wasn't recorded in the at the manor that was a demo that they had and we had run out of time we just couldn't uh -huh. do any more so uh i took the demo transferred it and we did overdubs onto it i think I, i'm not sure if uh, Mark Opitz maybe did that, it might have been an outtake from Shabu Shabar. I'm not sure about that. Or it was definitely no, I think, a demo. I think, I think Johnson's airplane was. Johnson's airplane might have been. I think might have been. One yeah, of but Johnson's airplane we recorded from scratch, new. There, there yeah. was a demo of that. Yeah. That's true. But yes. but um, yeah. with what I say, the actual version on 
the swing was recorded by someone else in Sydney. Uh-huh. Okay. It maybe wasn't maybe uh-huh. it wasn't Mark Hope. It's maybe it was a demo a demo that they did, but it was it had a vibe, and we just redid the vocal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and did some of the guitars and stuff, but it, it wasn't part. Of, it's the only song on the album that isn't part of what was done at the Manor. Okay. Whereas Johnson's Johnson's Aeroplane, you're right. There was a great demo, uh, and it what that's right. It was left over from Shabushabar, but we recorded it from scratch and and did it in a quite a different way. Such unusual lyrics on that. Mm. You know, yes, it was. It was um, you know, it's all all about growing. F- Growing vegetables, I think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Japanese farmers. I think so. <laughs> yeah. Farmers pride, you know it works real hard. From a small aeroplane, you can see the fields. Hot-shaped hedges, Japanese gardens. Hot-shaped hedges, Japanese gardens. A place to work and grow, a place to interesting stat for you Nick the swing is the only album that they recorded 10 songs on all their other albums have 11 or 12 so that's just a little statistic for you Um, but there's no real filler on this album but having a song like Original Sin with Niall being a a song there and then inheriting that and I'm sure you uh, you know love the song etc but how does it sort of work you know for you when you've got this great song from another uh, another producer then you've got your nine tracks you know Mm. Well, it terrified me when I first heard it because, you, so to put things in perspective, I'd met in excess, you know, through through the models. Uh, we we talked long distance about working together, but there was no rehearsal time. No, I hadn't really been sent any demos. We literally met properly, at, or as in, we're doing this record together once it already been decided that, that I was doing it, and this was at the manor. Mm. And mm. so they um, they said, uh, well, we've got these songs, we've got that songs, we were talking about the songs. Oh, and on our way here via America, we went into the studio with Nile Rogers. And I was like, what? Literally. You know, I was like, what? Like, and they said, Thanks. yeah, we did this song and, it, and it's got Hall and Oates doing backing oh. vocals and Nile Rogers produced it. And I was like, what? This Huge. is. I was amazed. And so we went into the studio and so I heard it for the first time. This is before it was released, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And I was just like, oh my God, it sounds like Let's Dance. It sounds exactly oh, yeah. like yeah. David Bowie's Let's Dance. Mm. But Same it's era, you this know? killer track. Yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah. Well, it, well, it was a few, a, a few months later. Yes. Like Nile Rogers did Let's Dance yeah. and then did is the same mm. studio, same engineer. And then he does. Then he does like a virgin. Six months after that, doesn't he? Right. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> wow. I, I really did feel it. Really did. I did feel the pressure. Mm. It really, really affected me because I was suddenly going. Well, not only did I think the song was incredible. I mean, I absolutely loved it. But it was so much more commercial sounding than the stuff I'd been doing. And mm. I was like, can I do this? Yeah. Can I do this stuff? And sonically, it was very fat. It was a lot of low end and top end and not a lot of middle. And I was, all my mm. records are a lot of middle. They were very hard, attacking, sort of a, not aggressive, but they were sonically these kind of odd sounds. And this was very polished 
so I kind of struggled with that. It was like, should I make what I'm doing polished? And in the end, I just thought, there's not enough time for me to worry about this. We, I've just got to do what I can do with these mm -hmm. songs, do the best. And that's what we did. And thank God they had that song, uh, Send a Message, because Send a Message was a really, really catchy song and an obvious yeah. single. So we did that and mm. I applied my thoughts to that, which actually the, another band that the band that, that In Excess were really into at the time was Human League. Uh, right. Yeah. So with all the synths, you know, mm -hmm. the doo -doo 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 -doo, like yeah, that sort yeah. of sequence synth. Yeah. So mm -hmm. that actually very, if you think about it, is yeah, somewhere between Eurythmics and humanly. If you go from June 1983 to June 1984, it was almost the 12 month period where every hit had the big synth in it, didn't it, you know? Or a subtle synth, you know, and of course we we had and we had Andrew, you know, Andrew, one of the most amazing keyboard players on planet mm. Earth. As far as writing parts and melodically, he's just phenomenal. I mean, everything he did sounded catchy. that song the fact that it, you know we just had these very loud drums with this unusual snare sound and that satisfied my sort of want to make it a bit odd and then everything else was all about the rhythm and the chorus when it hits is uh is a combination of this crazy slap bass guitar you know it you know like with you know with send a message it goes like you know uh it's like dun, 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 yeah. dun, dun. it's, it's <laughs> like three it's very it's syncopated so that's that's where the sort of uh talking heads yes. influence came in it yeah. was this whole thing if you listen to talking heads they always have a keyboard line followed by a bass part followed by a guitar and that whole yeah. thing you could hear the remaining lights influence couldn't you yeah yeah Totally. Yeah. And, you know, when you think about it, I think if you take as a progression, if you take uh, send, a, send a message, especially the chorus and its structure and what it's doing musically, if you then listen to Need You Tonight, it's oh, very yeah. similar. Yes. There's, 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 yes. there's a sort of interplay. I mean, the songs are very different. It's, but that's a sparseness, isn't there? Mm, yeah, space. Exactly. Mm. There's a lot of space um, and it's a, it's a dance song. So... Mm. You know, that that to me was very, very interesting. And I think when we did, you know, Burn For You is, is a sort of similar sounding song as well. There's quite a few tracks on uh, on there that, that have that similar vastness that's just, and a, and a groove. Yeah, you know? one of the credits, I think, with the credit to you with the, uh, the Swing album, I mean, 
there is obviously a, uh, a modern technology side to it. But I think if you think back to something burn for you, there's an acoustic guitar. I think if you look at Johnson's airplane, I'm sure there's strings as well as keyboard strings, I think. Yes, a- there are. We, we got... Um- Was it Motsing? Oh yeah, they were. That's right. That's right. It was done in Sydney. Yes. Yeah, that was done in Sydney. Yeah. Afterwards, and it was great. That was so much fun. He worked on a lot of Australian soap operas. Uh, William Motsing, I think. He is a lovely, lovely guy. I, I kept in touch with him. I think he did some other arrangements on on records I did later on. I wanna tell you. sound like like the models and I think I'm pretty sure that Sean and James from the models sing on that oh really yeah actually talking about guest sing- guest singers here's something that Ooh. people might not know uh, <laughs> is that um, the backing vocals or throughout the swing record like on quite a, quite a few songs are David Bowie's uh, backing vocal singers the, the, the same people Oh, right, it's the drummer, yeah. drummer and bass player from his band, who are on Iggy Pop's record, or the drummer and bass player from Iggy Pop's record, Last for Life. Oh. And you oh, know wow. that you know you know all the vocals on you know um, on Last for Life. You know the the uh, and oh, well that that album, that whole Iggy Pop record has a lot of backing vocals on yes. it. Yes, yeah. so those two guys who are brothers. They sing oh. on on the on the swing. They just happened to be in town because Bowie played this gig. It was the yes. uh, Moonlight tour, you know, the serious Moonlight tour. Yeah, and um, yeah. yeah. Now, what are those brothers called? They're really famous, and I should know their name, and I'm just blanking. Shall I they're, look at that? Yes, they're they're the something <laughs> brothers, and they they look very similar. They and one of them was such a good impersonator of voices. He impersonated Michael on the song, and it sounded exactly like him. It was incredible. Ah, yeah, oh, really wow. funny. Well, maybe they weren't um, credited on the album, Beat. I mean, I don't know. Oh no, they are. They definitely cred- they were definitely credited. Oh, they are. Okay. Uh, it, it begins with S. Sales, the Sales Brothers. So there's ah. Tony ah. Sales and Hunt Sales, and I think it was Tony who's also the bass player for um, Iggy Pop and Bowie. And Hunt is the drummer. They're both great singers, but it was Tony who was singing uh, and he started putting on a slight Australian accent and singing <laughs> like Michael and it was <laughs> uncanny because he ended up singing these crazy lyrics uh, just as a joke. And then Michael came in and we said, have a listen to this and it sounded exactly like it oh, Michael. Michael's like I don't remember singing those lyrics and, and this was when yeah. the Sales Brothers were still in the studio 
And uh, it was really funny. And Michael oh. was like, Carl, you should cut. Like, can you come and sing all the vocals live? Just stay behind me and I'll mind them. Yeah. Yeah. That was pretty funny. That's incredible. They sound very talented. This has got a bit of Millie Vanilli about yeah. it, uh, Nick. Um. <laughs> That's right. That's right. No, but like, the, if you listen to Melting in the Sun, it's it's the sales brothers doing the backing vocal. Right. Okay, never knew about these guys. And it guys. sounds like it sounds like Michael. Oh. It sounds like Michael doing his own backing vocals, but it actually is them. Fantastic! No, we never knew. There's a 12 inch remix of Melting in the Sun. It's about seven minutes long, and I'm I'm pretty sure yes. on that I solo like they're soloed, and you can hear them, and your the tone is uncannily like mine. Right. Mm, well, I'll play it now. you live in LA and you know I guess work-wise or you know the next level in your life uh, how long have you been there and what what made you go there well what happened was you know I did all did all those uh, albums in the 80s with within excess and midnight oil models etc and then I just loved Australia loved being in Sydney and so then I had uh, I had two kids Lee and Lana and we were living in England and by the time that Lee became seven it was time for him to go to you know a proper school not 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 uh, the Montessori school he'd been going and we were just like London is cold it's expensive and there were no schools near where we lived that were any good and we just thought why don't we just move to Australia so mm. So me, Nadia and the kids moved to Sydney. But but my concern about that was that, you know, my career had been getting bigger and bigger in England and we were leaving England and it's literally the other side of the planet. Uh, and this was way, way, way before the internet. So it was very worrisome to me that I was going to lose my momentum. So the compromise, I suppose, or, or the plan was move to Australia, buy, buy a big house, which we ended up buying in Manly, um, which was great. And then I would fly over to LA, which was much closer. I'd get uh, a manager in, in LA who actually was an English guy called Sandy Roberton, who was a great, great manager. And I would just fly between the two. So I'd live in Australia and then fly to LA and the, the, it works because all these English bands would fly to LA as well. So we'd meet mm. in the middle and, and there's a lot of great recording studios in LA at the time and they were actually quite cheap. They were certainly much cheaper than England. So mm. for an English record company to send an English band to LA to work with me was, was, was okay. So I did that for a while. I think then years, years went by and me and Nadia ended up sort of drifting apart and very amicably uh, separated and we're still best friends to this day. Uh, and my kids grew my kids grew up and uh, I ended up moving to LA because I was, I was uh, you know, honestly, such a workaholic. I just had, you know, just spend most of my life in the recording studios, mm -hmm. not, not so much anymore, thank God. Mm -hmm. I thought I, I should move to LA and work there. So I moved here 
because of the recording studios. And I started working with a lot of American bands. And that was, you know, worked out really well because I ended up working with the Yeah Yeahs and Arcade Fire and all, all kinds of American bands. So that that was a good mm. move. And I've just been here ever since. I mean, I still travel a lot to England to work with English bands. I mean, a, a couple of records like the Idols and uh, Anna Calvi and, and Block Party recently. I still go over there. And, and all the Nick Cave records that I did were all done in Europe. You know, apart from one was done in, in Melbourne, uh, Nocturama was done in, at Sing Sing, but all the rest were done either in London or, or France. We did, uh, I, there's a lot of great recording studios in, in France that are mm -hmm. very, very well priced and they're residential. So you get to eat great French food and, um, and they've got all the best analog equipment over there because the French mm. approach life a bit differently to the rest, you know, in both in England and America, they got rid of a lot of the great uh, 70s analog uh, desks and got newer sort of 80s and then 90s ones. And they just don't sound as good. And luckily, mm. France, I don't know what it is with Fr Fr French people and technology, but they really know what's good. You know, mm. they really, they don't care if it's the newest thing. No. If they like the old thing, they'll keep the old thing. So yeah. there's a lot of studios around France. It's a bit like their filmmaking too, isn't it? You know? Mm. Yeah. But I think mm. there's just a different mindset about yeah. things. You know, it's probably the same with cooking. Their cooking is very traditional and they do it the same way as mm. they used to. And, it is, and it's actually better. Yeah. Where the, the word vintage comes in, I suppose. Vintage. Isn't it? Yes. <laughs> and and, and Lorna is a French word. Is that right? It is yeah. well. I well, my 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 dad's my dad's French. Yeah, my mum's sort of bloodwise was half French, I think. So okay. bloodwise, I'm quite French, but Ooh. I grew up in uh, in Spain. I did all my education in Spanish, and uh, then went to England. You do look like a musketeer today. I must have seen. Uh, I am, well, yes, clearly I am a musketeer <laughs> with that little moustache and your long yes, hair. Yes, yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I might be a vampire as well. Maybe a musketeer <laughs> vampire. about the Nick mix on New Sensation. How did that come uh, about, the 12-inch? Mm. Well, uh, I stayed in touch with them. And whenever they mm. came to, that would that would have been when I was living in London. And yep. my kids were probably very, very young. And um, stayed in touch with them. And I went and visited them while they were making Kick. They made that with Chris Thomas at, at Air Studios in off Oxford Street. And I remember going up there and hearing some of the songs and blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, once it came out, of course, it was the era when every single had to have a 12-inch remix. Mm. That's, that was just the standard thing. That was the thing. way it was, wasn't and, it? And, mm. and so I got given the job of doing the remix of that and thoroughly enjoyed it. I remember delivering it to the band and, and they were 
I think they were on tour or something and, you know, they were in town. And I remember getting in a minivan, a big big minivan. The whole band were there and Chris Murphy and everybody was there. I think even Chris Thomas was there. I think maybe we were heading out to wherever they were playing to do a sound check. And I had it, you know, and it was probably a CD. Could have even been a cassette at that point. Put it on loud and, and they loved it. Mm. They went absolutely, they loved that song, that the remix. And I remember looking at Chris Thomas, of course, who was a much bigger record producer than, than I was. And I'm a, I was a huge fan of Chris Thomas because he'd done the Nevermind the Bollocks, you know, mm-hmm. Sex Pistols record and the Pretenders record. So, and I, you know, I didn't know him really at all. I'd basically just been introduced to him. And of course, I was the record producer who did the album before. So that's always a bit awkward. And I saw him, he was looking very, very puzzled. Like, what on earth had I done to the arrangement? But of course, that was the idea, was to rearrange it different to the single. That was the point. So, uh, and I don't think he knew that. I don't think he knew that. He was like, why has this young person who's (laughs) who's a fan of the band? And you did, you youthed it up. That's exactly what you did. I I youthed it up. Yeah, well, I did what what we had to do. I mean, I I did a lot of 12-inch remixing at the time. In fact, there's probably more occupied with doing 12-inch remixes during that era than anything else. Mm. Uh, I did it did it for many bands and um, I did quite a few for, you know, I did um, Suicide Blonde as well was another one. Did, did about five 12-inch remixes for In Excess from, you know, around the time of Kick and X. <laughs> It was like that was a bit of a shocker because he didn't know me. Uh, I didn't know what. I don't think he even knew that I produced a previous record because there was um, another record in between, wasn't there? Listen like thieves. Listen like yeah. thieves, exactly. So I didn't really know Chris during that time, and then ended up hanging out with him in Sydney and his family. And yeah, I mean, I've, I've saw Chris Thomas couple of years ago in London he was in you know we were in mm-hmm. the same studio I was in one studio and I was in another but same studio complex and okay. yeah lovely lovely guy I mean I'm yeah. a huge fan of his you know yeah. I don't know if he's a fan of mine but I'm, I'm sure he is <laughs> say um, I'll just pass on um, I spoke to Tim and I told him that we were going to be speaking oh. to him and he said oh Nick's an absolute sweetheart can you please and and um, Kirk actually please pass on our love to um, Nick yeah there you well there I just you. I just love them you. I mean I haven't seen enough of them and I need to make a bigger effort to see mm-hmm. them I think when I go back this time I will go and see them I mean I've just been so so busy they've been busy but I've been insanely busy I have not stopped and I'm at that point in my life where you know I'm kind of like reevaluating what's important we'll try and get in touch with Tim because I think you'll have a lot to talk about oh I Mm. think I I mean I've got a lot to talk with all of them I I love them Mm. all I mean Mm. nothing ever came between us at all you know what I mean we made that Mm. record way back when we were very young 
when we were in our 20s and then I kept in touch and then sort of I guess you know unfortunately the whole thing of 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 Michael passing that just kind of Mm. stopped everything but I, I do want to say one thing is that I know this one singer who would be the best singer for them tell us yeah (laughs) well his name's jack atlantis and he is this he's closer to their age he looks really young and he moves like michael he he's sings in a low voice he's in a cramps cover band that are incredible and he was in a david bowie cover band but he is one of the most extraordinary performers he's got as much he's got the charisma that michael had He's mm-hmm. tall and thin, very mm-hmm. handsome guy, and he can sing. He can sing and he has a similar range to Michael. And I have been telling them via their various managers over the years. We're talking over the last 20 years because every time it's sort of like, oh, they're going to do an album with all these guest singers or they're going to do this TV show. I was just like, you have to meet Jack Atlantis. You have mm-hmm. to meet him. Okay. And honestly, it's time. But if they want to go out and tour, playing in excess songs and need a front guy, they need to at least get in the same room with Jack Atlantis. You know that Tim had an accident, though. And I, I do. Guitar. Mm. Yeah, but I, but I, I'm going to call. There's ways around it. But I, there's loads of ways around it. There's loads of ways around that. I don't. I don't see that as a problem. And anyway, all we we just want Tim up mm. on stage. We, we want do. him up there. And we mm-hmm. want him. We want him doing his thing, and he can definitely play an, enough guitar stuff to make it work. And you know, when when the the drummer from Def Leppard can play without one arm, he can definitely play guitar without one finger. Finger. Now, do you realise that Gary Beers is in LA? I do, and I did when I first came here. I saw him and hung out with him a bit. I haven't seen him we'll for a very long time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, look, uh, uh, you know, maybe you guys can help me. I'm on a mission. Right, I've been on this mission for a while to get Jack Atlant to get them to be in the same room with him because I swear when it happens they're going to go. Why on earth didn't we meet this guy before? Yeah. And I'm going to say, well, <laughs> well, you listen to my email, read my emails. <laughs> I, I definitely mentioned it to Tim. I've mentioned it to definitely mentioned it to John. We had a meeting about it. Uh, okay. This was around the time when they were looking for singers when they were doing that TV show. And I mm-hmm. said, Jack Atlantis, he's your man. He's the guy. Um, yeah. Anyway, I'm just saying, Jack Atlantis is still going strong. He's in his 40s, probably late 40s, but you would never know. It. But he's the thing is that he looks of the same era as them. Do you know what I mean? I think that's mm-hmm. important. I think it was crazy mm-hmm. that they went and got this really young guy that, look, that, that, that mm. looks like... Uh, you know, Justin Timberlake. It made them look old, you know, and and he, and he wasn't yeah. very rock and roll. And he didn't, he, he had a charisma, but not the right, you know, not knocking the guy. He did it, you know, it's, it was oh, what it was. Oh, he did but, incredibly well, but they, yeah, they'd already well. star style and he just couldn't keep up with Yeah, it. yeah. They need to write some songs, n- new songs with Jack. He's, he's, a, he's great. That's great. Oh, we will look him up. I love a project. So oh. 
this podcast is mostly about in excess, right? Or is it, it a, is about is, dedicated? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Dedicated. I see. Good, good, good. Well, I'm definitely going to make a huge effort to see them and hang out with them around Christmas when I come to Australia. Really love 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 them all so much. So you can live for Christmas. Such a great band. Yes, I because my kids still live in Sydney. They're both grown up now. They're in their thirties, yeah. early early thirties now. But they they live in Sydney, and I, I I honestly I love Sydney. I still love it. I could I mm-hmm. could move back there. I feel very very connected to to all the lads in in excess even though i haven't seen them and i know mm. that when i see them it will be just like i saw them yesterday it's 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 an in, it's a wonderful thing that happens mm. when you make a record with someone you Special. really get to know them you know you mm-hmm. you know everything that's going on in their lives and you, you and you stay with them for years and years after you know mm-hmm. or at least i do i mean i'm friends with every band i've worked with and and i go to their gigs and i hang out and i I'm curious about what they're doing and invariably end up working with them as, you know, in solo solo albums and stuff like that sometimes as well. And it's it's just a big family. Yeah, it amazes me how young you were and how talented you all are and how you can make something that is so special that is then globally recognized and people are still to this day listening to that music yeah. from you know seven of you getting together and, and making incredible music together it, it, it is incredible obviously when mm. you're when you're doing it you don't know what's going to happen you just hope mm. that someone likes it you know you're not <laughs> i mean sometimes with a band you can predict that oh yeah you know this will get noticed because the band are famous uh, but you'd never expect it to sort of keep keep the interest of of new generations that's the extraordinary thing that's i mean right. i find with it within excess's album and, and the midnight oil album in particular you know you get ba- bands like amel and the sniffers whose whose album I've, I've just you know done their new one it, it's like you know you never know you, you listen to them and they're sort of it's it's very punk it's it's more like Sex Pistols and ACDC but mm-hmm. you know it turns out that they're you know different members in that band are are, are huge fans of Midnight Oil and yeah. In Excess and they all know you know they all know Need You Tonight so, you know yeah. you know they th- they're, they're in their 20s they're in yeah. their early 20s so it's 30 years difference like, you know yeah. and yet they know these songs and that's a great great thing that there's this connection and it's often like you know you, I find that sometimes I think oh well they're this type of band so they're not going to like that because that's too pop but it's actually not the way it's like right. if it's a if it's a it's a if it's a good song with great lyrics it, it will keep you know having its interest with, with mm-hmm. new generations and and that's a side that I'm very grateful for and it is wonderful mm-hmm. I mean it is you know and the whole thing with like Kate Bush that's extraordinary what's happened with Kate Bush you know because I do I did this one one record with her called The Dreaming and finding out that you know I keep getting interviewed I've done a couple of interviews in the last month because I did this record with her and I'm one of the few people who she, you know she, she produced a lot of her own records herself mm-hmm. so 
it, you know, I had this kind of magic time with her doing that album. And well, she has become very popular through Stranger Things now, hasn't exactly. she? And now, and now she's about to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which is our mission right. statement, is to get um, uh, them recognised and help to get them into yeah, the Rock yeah. and Roll Hall of Fame. We can't even believe they've not even been nominated once. That's you know, crazy. It is crazy, crazy. Yeah, I mean, all the all this. I mean, the eighties was a fantastic time for songs and bands and music, and the early eighties in particular was was really great. So, I feel very lucky that I got to work with In Excess back then at that time because you know, like I said, they're the same age as me. We're all the same age, right? You know, every record I made in those two years is still important today. It's quite extraordinary. And yet there are records that I made for many years during the late 80s and early 90s, which honestly you've never heard since. Because they were groundbreaking. Yeah, the technology was at the cusp. You know, digital mm. had just been invented, but there was it wasn't recording digital. There was just digital effects, and that was very new. I, I just think it was, a, you know, a combination of where my head was at, my enthusiasm, and being lucky enough to be put in the studio with these extraordinary bands, these really talented musicians. And then there's the time restraints, you know, you've got mm. so many days to do this and you just go for it. Mm. And that's what happened. But, but you know, those And the records, money was there then as well. The money there? was there. The yeah, budget, well, the budget was there. The, budget the budgets was there. are just not so good yeah. anymore. No, for it's terrible Lots now. of industries, but more so for the music yeah, industry. Yeah. And yes. it's just so um, quick now. Someone can get a song and they can just upload it onto Spotify. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, thank God for technology. Otherwise, we couldn't make records with the budgets we get now. I mean, the no. budgets for a record now are the t a tenth of what they were mm -hmm. in the 80s. It's extraordinary. Mm -hmm. I mean, an and album. Videos. Would, yeah, a, a video. Mm -hmm. uh, sorry, uh, an album in, in the 80s would be about £300,000 would be the budget to make that record then. Yeah. Now it's about thirty, And that's not allowing for the <laughs> time and, you know, yeah. inflation and all it? that. It's ridiculous. totally ridiculous. But anyway, all good. Well, I could speak to you all day. You are fascinating. Your knowledge, amazing. And it's good that you're still making songs for us. And uh, would you come back? I will come back. I would love to come back. <laughs> yes, um, Yeah, no, please. it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me on, on to your wonderful, I'm going to call it radio station. <laughs> no, it's great. It's great, great chatting with you. And, and, and it's quite therapeutic, you know, talking about things from back then. It sort of all comes back and you realise how incredibly lucky I am, you know, and, and what a great time it was. Well, lovely to meet you and take care. And lovely to meet you too. Good night and, and hello everybody in Australia and the world. And this is Manny from the UK. This is Lisa Mack from Brisbane, Australia. And this is Felicia from Everett, Washington, USA. And that's a wrap.
Well, that was uh, pretty exciting, B. He uh, took us to a place where our In Excess Access uh, All Areas listeners love to go to. Absolutely. Uh, A place where where we never were and never were going Mm -hmm. to be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Supermodels, my goodness, (laughs) my goodness. Wow, what a life. I mean, I'm sure he's got more stories packed away from other bands as well, but thank you so much for sharing those with us. Mm. And, and and what's really interesting is that you know in excess the guys are fantastic they're lovely people yeah. and it feels like feels like they work with lovely people like mm. you know Nick himself and Mark and some of these people but um, to go sort of deep there into uh, you know the supermodel story to Danny Saber yep. um, all the way through to um, I guess uh, some of the recordings uh, within the swing there like uh, it was just a treat having him on. And that bit about Michael being a visionary and um, mentioned about sound bites, and here we are yes. in this world, you know, like with Twitter and everything, and here well, we John, are. Yeah. yeah. Amazing well, and, that he, uh, my, he knew that or could see it, what the kids were going to get into. Well, yeah. It sounds like Michael's come up with the word sound bites ahead of time, and we've got mm. uh, Michael and John came up with uh, back online uh, before right. it's time. So, yeah. <laughs> so Steve Jobs, uh, step aside. <laughs> Yeah, so no, great um, guest. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I hope you all enjoyed that. I'd love to hear your feedback. Um, give us a review on any of the last couple of um, episodes on our website. Just go to our website, inaccessallareas.com, and um, give us a, a couple of likes and reviews. We really love reading them, don't we? And it's good for other people to read and what, what your thoughts yeah. are too. Now, Nick's very kindly said he would be very, very uh, happy to uh, sign a vinyl album or two of The Swing and dedicate it uh, accordingly to uh, uh, a patron who was to win that at our auctions. So uh, over the next couple of weeks, uh, we will be releasing a bit more detail on that. Um, I guess like everything, we would like to dedicate sort of this episode to the genius of Nick and The Swing and go out with a bit of a one-two punch today, B. I thought we'd like to encourage our listeners to put on their head Phones and be podcasters or listeners like us, but we're going to go out with the one-two punch of "Melting in the Sun" and the title track of the album, "The Swing" itself, because. Uh, that song, The Swing, had a bit of a rebirth for me about two or three years ago. I started listening to it. I love the the big sound. It's like a rocky version of Baby Don't Cry, yeah. but a bit more rocked up version. So do yourself a favour. Put your headphones on and hear the technical wizardry uh, of uh, Nick Lorne's fingerprints and the band coming together because I think you would uh, definitely serve your interests well. Uh, other than that, B, it's a goodbye from me. And I couldn't help myself but put Suicide Blonde, the 12 inch by Nick Launay on the very end also. And I hope to see some of you on my travels around Australia and uh, hopefully speak to you all from uh, Melbourne maybe in a couple of weeks time too. Look out for the auction and it's a goodbye from B. I'm melting in the sun. This is what they call the life I suppose too much sun Makes a desert out of shade In the middle of this country There's a lot I want to see
Everybody's got advice Take a snake and take a ladder